Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. I've been so excited to hear from those of you who are going to be joining me on my January writing course, Write Like a Reader. On Sunday afternoons, I'll be guiding you through a series of weekly hour-long sessions in which I'll be unlocking your creative confidence. If you listen to this podcast and you love reading and you long to write a novel, I believe in you and I can show you how to believe in yourself. Check out the Your Book newsletter, furtherreading.substack.com. There's information about how to apply for a place. I've just finished my 2023 novel and you'll be the first to hear all about it and I'm already starting to plan my book for 2024. But now my 2022 novel, Careering, a romantic comedy where work is the ultimate unrequited love interest, is available everywhere. If you'd like a dedicated copy of that or of my other books including Insatiable, The Sisterhood and How to Be a Grown-Up, get in touch with the Margate Bookshop or Book Bodega in Ramsgate and we'll make it happen. They deliver nationwide. Now on to today's guest. Rosa Rankin-Gee is the author of The Last Kings of Sark, a beautiful, moving and compelling dark comedy, and the smash hit dystopian novel Dreamland. She's also my friend and Kent Coast neighbour. I've been longing to have a book chat with Rosa for absolutely ages and I'm thrilled that she's here. We talk about Paris, coming from a writing family and how big book piles become part of our furniture. Obviously, our listeners will know and love your work and think of scary utopias and chilling visions. Um, and I think like when this goes out, we'll probably be post-Halloween, but we are in the spooky, scary, the season of being unnerved and confused. Do you have any favourite spooky books or unsettling books or chilling books? Here is a book that I read recently when I was in Mexico and I texted my girlfriend and was like this book is amazing how like you should you should definitely read it she was like yeah I've loved it for years and it's always so frustrating when someone you like love has been keeping something secret from you now this is a book that's not secret in any way because it was turned into a film with Brad Pitt but have you read World War Z no I have not please tell me about it I went to Venice when I was 30 I was like this undiscovered gem you know like Obviously, Venice has so many travellers that it's sinking. But World War Z has sold millions of copies, but so many people haven't read it. Um, and it is 
sensational. It's far better than the film. It's basically a journalist is compiling accounts of this like third world war, which is a zombie war. And it's just so kind of geopolitically interesting. You know, it's like, I, I think it's a feat of world building when you can build one world, but when you can enter so many different like characters and angles and places, it's just, I don't know if flies actually have this vision, but you know that there are some creatures that have these like, you know, multiple angled eyes. The dude can do it. It's really, really good. I've actually forgotten who wrote it, which is terrible. Max Brooks. Max Brooks. Max. Thank you. Thank you, producer ah. Dale. Yeah, so that is a decidedly spooky book because normally, like, I'm a big dystopia fan, um, but I really prefer social realism. Um, and that, mm. that would be the way my 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 tastes go. But I think... I think the zombies are either very appealing to people and then they will also alienate a lot of people. But I would just mm. say that even to non-zombie files, they would be into this because it feels, it just, it's very kind of earthy and, and completely plausible, actually. Can you remember, was there a, the first book that you read that was a dystopia that made you think, oh, this is what is possible in literature? Um, I absolutely can. It is Robert C. O'Brien's Z for Zachariah. Have you read that? I remember that. I read that quite a long time ago in an English class. <sighs> it's, I mean, like, I packed a Carrymore, ready to go. Um, it had a rope in it. It had, like, two pairs of underwear. I think a tin of, like, beans. It was a very, like... It was a bag that would not have allowed me to survive for more than 10 minutes. You read Z for Zachariah and you packed a go bag. Were you at school? Was it assigned reading? No, I lived... No, 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 no. I think it was... My dad and I have always had a kind of like survival thing, like another another series of books that he gave me, that which I absolutely loved and kind of dipped back into recently and still loved were the Gary Paulson Hatchet books. Oh, I don't know those. They're fantastic. They, I mean talk about cinematic start there's this kid he's 15 he's the product of divorce shall we say and he's just going from one parent to another in a private plane and he's up front with the captain and the captain gives him a little go on the plane flying device the pilot starts to have what he thinks is terrible gas and then there's an awful smell and he's had a heart attack and basically brian this kid has to he dies there and then and he has to like try and land this plane in the middle of nowhere and all he's got is the you know titular hatchet that his mum gave him that he's got to survive in this um forest featuring bears and other things so this is this sort of intense powerful devastating terrifying scenario with a child having to you know sort of fend for themselves about their lives but it begins with a fart attack well, the, yeah, I mean, but that's the thing. I'm, I'm, I'm not making light of it. It's not a funny thing at all. But it, like, it's so vivid, and I, I mean, that is a that is a reality of what can happen when people have heart attacks. You know, so I think you know people can think of YA books and children's books as sanitized in some way, and they're so frequently, so frequently not. Um, and those are the images and kind of things that stay with you. But yeah, because I was kind of surrounded by books like this, or those were the ones that. Those were the ones that really, not lit me up, but they got trapped inside my head. And I've thought about this a lot, why teenagers and children respond so much to dystopian literature or kind of these, what 
dystopian happenings, even if it's not kind of set in the future. I think they allow you to, we don't have that much power with children at all. We don't really make any decisions about our own lives. So there's something about suddenly being in a scenario where you have agency and you have to make these huge decisions um, and take kind of control of your life and circumstances. They are appealing, even if it's just to kind of stoically imagine your way through potential disasters. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, even off the top of my head, something like The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is, you know, this other world. But throughout, you know, the children are, are gaining autonomy and seeking independence and exploring on their own. And that's all I think you ever really want as a child, to be left alone to find things. And I guess that's what reading is too. Yeah, I guess the author has to find a way to get rid of all of the adults, whether it mm. is kind of Lord of the Flies or or escaping through a wardrobe or whatever it is. And I think I think that is just kind of catnip to kids. There's a book I adore. It's called The Lark by E. Nesbitt, who wrote Five Children in It. It's not a dystopia. It's really, really funny and charming and delightful. But it begins with um, two, I think they're cousins and they're at boarding school. And they're other class where money has sort of never been a worry and they don't really think about it. And then there has been corruption and financial mismanagement and they're called to see the headmistress and they said that, you know, the your grandmother's accountant was dodgy. You've got 500 quid and the lease on a cottage. Um, you're not at school anymore. Off you go, make the best of it. And the two of them as best friends are kind of playing house together and it's so charming. They've just got the right amount of kind of naivety and goodwill. They are more skilled than they realise and more suited to it than they realise. It's not like, oh no, I've burned down the kitchen again. And it's like, I was thinking about another book. I think, again, that kind of getting rid of the parents or like having 500 quid or 50 quid or whatever it is, like um, the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil... E. Frankweiler, that's a long title. E.L. Conningsberg. Oh, I don't know that book. Tell me about it. There's a narrator called Claudia. I think she's about, I can't remember if she's 11 or 12. She seemed old to me because I think I was, I must have been younger than her. But she is really like, she's done with her parents and she's ready to leave. And her, like, she's saving up. And she also takes her younger brother because he has been very, like, financially savvy. Even though he's, like, seven, he's been kind of, like, he's been saving for a radio, I think. Um, and he, so she enlists him and they run away to go and live in the Met in New York. And it's, like, she's planned it all, how they get the tickets, like, how they're going to hide in the loos. And there's something, like, I think... I mean, I'm, I'm saying all this with a smile, like people run away for very dreadful, real reasons. You know, there are so many forks in life. And I think I've always been fascinated in my own writing too and by stories of like people just deciding to, to run away or to leave or to take a kind of strong veer away from the life that they are kind of on. I didn't plan running away as a kid, um, but I definitely like... I think about the books I loved as a kid from that perspective and like they were solid, they were tangible, there were lists, there were kind of like actions. I didn't really like vague ones. I really loved in Zebra Zachariah, for example, when the kid, um, I keep on saying the kid, I have forgotten some of these characters' names. She finds her family's old stores and the shop they had and she kind of documents everything that they've got. Like I think those tangible details of stockpiling and stock taking, maybe they're not interesting to anyone else but 
they made things feel very kind of real. Oh, I love that though. I really, really love that. Any kind of bit of um, admin. But I was thinking about how well Marion Keyes writes her offices. And there are all these amazing kind of auxiliary supporting characters. And she write, they're so real. They don't exist only to approve of the, the main character or sort of support them or, or be back. Like you could you really feel as though you're coming into the book from one end at one angle but you could just as easily like go around the back or go around the side and there'd be this whole other story with the side character as the main character and it's because she does that detail so well and you want to see the boring spreadsheets and holiday rotors and you know the cleaner always comes in half an hour early on Tuesdays because it's just it's the fabric of life and somehow so lively totally I agree with you 100% when your dad was sort of sharing those books with you was it, it feels like a mutual discovery? Because I know um, your mother is an author also. You know, was it the sort of upbringing that I'd imagine where it's, you know, you lived in a very bookish house? My dad there. is a writer too. And actually he's the one who has more books, I'd say. My mum tries to like um, institute a one in, one out book policy at the moment in the house. So my dad, like I, I've left Ramsgate um, temporarily at least because our landlord had to sell the place we were renting. But when I was there, he would occasionally send books to my house that I'd have to smuggle into his house because he knew that my mum would kind of notice if ever-growing parcels of books were coming. Um, I, yeah, it, I mean, it was a household full of books and that was it. That's incredibly lucky. I think that I was not, I think partially because my best friend, I mean, we're still very, very close to this day. My, one of my best friends as a kid was a voracious reader. And I think in comparison to her, I was less of a voracious reader, but we, we, we read a lot. And there was a period where we read around, like not a long period. This isn't a fair depiction, but like once or twice we would write, we would write, we would read around the table, like after dinner. Um, and we tried this with a few books. And one of them, the one I remember the most was Lord of the Rings, or the, it was definitely maybe The Hobbit. And I remember it for a terrible reason. I had been banned from swearing, obviously. I was a child. Um, and it was the time very much in the kind of like early 90s of um, homophobic slurs being used very casually by primary school children. And so I've been banned from saying the word which had, was kind of ripping through year four or year five at the time, which was puff. And I got to a bit in the text where I was reading and it said something like, and he disappeared with a giant puff. And I got to say it and I was just <laughs> thrilled. I was like, here it is and they can't stop me. Um, so that's like, that's, that is my foremost memory of that collective round table reading, which didn't happen often, but did happen occasionally. They still do that. My dad reads, my, my dad's reading Trollope to my mum at the moment and they have a, they do that like, they do it. They really do it. I love that so much. And I do remember that bizarre period in the 90s where, yeah, it was like the, the playground's a very homophobic place. And I don't think we really fully knew or understood what those words were. But it's a bit different. But when we did um, at school reading out Pygmalion at A-level, and if um, uh, Henry Higgins would say, don't be an ass pickering, like don't be a donkey, my very, very southern school, you'd hear us, oh, don't be an ass pickering. <laughs> I'd just like to say that homophobic slurs did not, you know, end in the 90s. Mm. Um, they were alive and well in Durham all the way through to my final years. May Durham rest in hell. But yeah, it was, it's so funny what kind of 
the memories that hook in your mind from childhood about things like that. Love that thought. You'd be like, oh, Tolkien, I get to do it, I swear. I think we stopped reading at the Tom Bombadil bit, just got too much. I really wanted to ask as well about your family. Do you read each other's books? That is a really good question. Uh, it's funny, someone was asking me the other day, like, you and your mum both have novels set in Thanet and hers came out after yours and it's kind of like set in the near future. Is there any competitiveness? She has done everything first and I admire her immensely really immensely like her novel the ice people came out in 1999 and it's one of our first like examples of climate fiction it's about a a return to an ice age um she's written in every genre and they are extraordinary books they really are i haven't read a few of them for a long time but i was teaching at an avant course recently and she's done she's taught so many through her through her career and there were, I was feeling, it was the first time I'd ever done it and I was feeling really kind of insecure, imposter syndrome, all of those things. And I just thought I'd sit with my mum for a second um, and I pulled out, I remember I pulled out The White Family, which is a really excellent novel that was just reissued um, with an introduction by Bernadine Evaristo in its kind of, for its 20th anniversary. And it's about, it's based on the, the murder of Stephen Lawrence. She's been very honest about its uh, journey into the world, uh, it was basically rejected by every publisher across the country um, because, you know, we hadn't uh, accepted that there was institutional racism as well as mainstream racism across the country and it was just kind of considered taboo. And finally, when it did come out, it was shortlisted for the Orange. But beyond that, I was just so struck by the quality of the writing. She's 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 wonderful. I think if... Either of the two of us is a kind of true author. It is her, and I don't really say that in a self-effacing way. It kind of pours from her in a, in a different way, I think. Um, but yeah, back to the question, do we read each other's novels? We do and have, and it can be really, really helpful. Yeah, I, I think it can be helpful. I think, it's, I, think, I think it's probably easier me reading her work than it is her reading my work. Partially because I think both of us are uh, are kind readers and and generous readers, but I think that children are... Parents expect children to be critical of them. And of course, we can expect parents to be critical of us too, but there will always be a part of you that just wants your mother or your father to say, it's lovely, dear, even if you've kind of presented them with an actual turd, um, which children do regularly um so yeah I think it's 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 complicated but but it's very lucky I think I think the other thing I I want to say about having parents who are writers my worst fear is that people kind of think things are nepotistic or things like that and I I think I think that's a very real question for people to have what I would say about my experience of having parents who are authors is that the advantage it has given me is seeing what the real life of a writer looks like, um, how a bad review can darken a household for weeks, the good days and the really, really bad days, how critical and commercial success does not align with the quality of work all of these things so I think I think that's that's the advantage and I remember when my first book came out I was terrified and I was living in Paris at the time and I saw my parents I came back 
I burst into tears and they were like, well, what's wrong? And I said, well, I didn't really think about it. Like you write in the privacy of your own mind and home and then suddenly the book's going to come out. And if you're lucky, people can say what the hell they like about you in a newspaper. I mean, it's just like, it's just monstrous really when you think about it. And within about two minutes, they were making me cry with laughter, recounting, you know, the worst lines that had been said about them in reviews. And it was just really wonderful. And I, I tell that story frequently to other writers because I'm like, this will happen to all of us. And the value of it is maybe that one day you make a, a worried person really laugh and feel kind of slightly less pressured about those things I guess I'm fascinated by it because I know as a writer it's not like me saying so has being the child of oligarchs given you an advantage because you know we both know writing is not like that it's one of the most financially and emotionally insecure things anyone can do I think that that's the thing though I think it's really the work that counts I think Searching for Sugar Man that fantastic film I think it works for anyone who's kind of in the creative industries in any way. You have to just do the work. You have to make it good. And you have to, in whatever way this happens, you have to imagine that another country, whether it's a country of three people or one people, has found your work and they are cheering for it and they have they have kind of created an entire subculture around it. You know, I think I think the work has to be good and... And time will tell. I, I, it's very easy to feel kind of frustrated by how writers get paid and how quick it can all feel, right? Your book comes out and then it's like, you know, it's last week, last week's book and last season's book. Last, It can feel so, when you're close to it, it can really feel so intense. But that's why that feeling of sitting with my mum's books, which have come out over the last like 40 years, sitting with them and just looking at them again they like a book is physical when it's a printed book it will be there for a very very long time and you never know who's going to find it or when it could be your own daughter it could be a stranger it could be anyone and that that's the only way that I can that it feels still so kind of full of possibility to me and you mentioned teaching on the Arvon course I'd love to hear which authors living or dead that you would most like to have been taught by oh god that's a really good question um it's difficult because the writers that you love might not be good teachers they're very distinct qualities to have I guess like I've been reading lots of Doris Lessing recently I loved like Maureen Dam was one of the first adult books I loved as a kid and again that falls into the kind of dystopia survival categories it's about two young siblings it's also set in an, in, an, in an ice age in the deep future, two young siblings kind of making their way through Ifrik, which is a, a future iteration of Africa. Um, and I recently, I was staying with a friend and he recommended I read The Fifth Child. Now that, okay, going, coming back to the Halloween season, The Fifth Child, have you read that by Doris Lessing? Yes, yeah, that's such a long time ago. Oh my God. I mean, like just for any listener of, a couple who are set on being kind of having a conservative family of five with, you know, a family house, a kind of picture perfect vision of life. Their fifth child, Ben, even from pregnancy, is kind of 
fighting against um, the mother's belly. It is a horror. It's a very thin novel. And it's, a, it's a horror story. And then I read Ben in the World, which... So I think I think she is, she is an amazing stylist. Her ambition in different genre, her, like, breadth of work. Like, obviously, she won the Nobel, and there's that amazing, like, Doris Lessing winning the Nobel Prize, stepping out of the black cab, and someone saying you've won the Nobel and she's like, oh, bloody hell, it's one of the best videos of all time. But yeah, I wonder what she'd have been like as a teacher. Her writing doesn't suggest a patience, you know, she's very, mm. there's like a dexterity of mind and a real kind of unrosy vision of the world. And I wonder what she'd have been like as a teacher. I think I know exactly what you mean, because I love I really, really loved Martha Quest and The Golden Notebook. And I don't want to, I think, you know, Doris Lessing were here. I'm sort of imagining her in a classroom, walking around and having like a really long, like a pointer, or a rule, and like wrapping your knuckles if you said something stupid. But in her writing, she doesn't suffer fools. I definitely fear I have a fool in me that would not be suffered. Um, but that, and that's what I mean, like about the two different, like writers of both like superlative talent who... who clearly would be had have very different teaching styles everyone in the world says that george saunders is the nicest man and the best teacher so why not choose george you know he's superb one of the best short story writers and kind of again like epic versatility so i think you know he would be a tried and tested from a teaching perspective you know he's he's, he's getting he's getting good marks on yelp you could have scary mornings with doris lessing and then you'd come out of lunch about, oh, God, that was what a morning. And then a lovely, cosy afternoon with George Saunders where your sort of emotional health would be restored. There are so many. And that's the, again, like I come back to the artifact of the book. But the one the wonderful thing is we really don't have to engage with writers' personalities or te- teaching styles. It is all in the work itself, right? You know, like you can read a book off Proust. You don't have to spend time in Proust improves bed and you definitely don't want to spend time in the book of bed but you know you, you can you can you can you would probably wouldn't want me um but the fact that the work is there when you can you can learn from from everything i find i don't know if you do this too it's probably maybe it's kind of sacrilegious but i do i don't have any bookshelves here in this apartment because we only just moved in um, and lots of my books are in other places but the beauty too of, of a library or somewhere like arvon or having lots of surrounding yourself with books that you love and you love for different reasons. Like I love the practice of just pulling out a book and just kind of getting closer to the essence of that writing. And it might just be to to remember how other authors go from paragraph to paragraph or start chapters and not, not to kind of plagiarize, but just to kind of bathe in again, you know, the possibility of it all. Oh, I love that. And so much essays, especially in Anne Patchett and Zadie Smith every time when when I feel as though my brain is made of swollen thumbs, and I'm, which I often do, where I'm just going, rah, 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 they've got nothing here. And the way they write with such clarity, but neither of them are afraid to be quite direct and quite simple. There's no obfuscation. No, it's bracing. And the, the confidence that they don't have to impress anyone, and they consistently do. And just that kind of short sentences, say what you mean, stop showboating, just crack on it's it's oxygen dipping into things like that it's oxygen entirely 
quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. We'll be back with Rosa soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen Fight Night by Miriam Toes. This is one of my very favourite books of 2022. Swiv, awkward, smart and furious, has to navigate her relationship with her pregnant mother and her loose cannon grandma Elvira in this truly funny, dark, love-filled story about love, death, hope and perspective. I don't know about you, but if you're feeling totally over 2022, I promise this will bring enough light and joy to get you over the finish line. Fight Night by Miriam Toes is out now and published by Faber. Now, back to Rosa. So, you've just moved and I can see, I don't know how many books have piled up there in the world, but I'm sure I can see at least 100. Blimey! So, what are the books that, when you moved, you thought, I have to take this with me, I have to make sure this is within reaching distance at all times? That's a really good question. It does, it does when you're moving house. It's not even when you're moving house. It's quite, it's quite easy if you're going to hire a van to kind of pile books into boxes. Um, the thing that's difficult is when you're trying to, like, you're going to get a joiner in and you're going to have some shelves made. You have to work out, like, is this book worth the at least, like, however many pounds it will cost for that kind of inch of shelf space. And it, that's a different kind of calculation. Um, books that I love to have around. My girlfriend, I gave her I Captured the Castle when she went on a work trip recently and she was going to leave it in this beautiful Airbnb because they had a library. And I was like, bring that book back now. Um, <gasps> so had she read it before? She hadn't read it before. And I, so I gave it to her because I knew she needed some kind of like, pure escapism and I just read the I just read the introduction when I gave it to her and I I, I ha- hadn't actually known that Dodie Smith had written it from America from California looking out at the ocean and like it's so suffused with nostalgia and it's so funny and it's so fleet-footed and immediate and amazing and I was telling my mum that I'd given it to Leah and she she told me that my grandma absolutely 
loved it. I think it's one of those amazing things where, I mean, everyone loves that book because it is just sensationally good. But there are those very touching moments where you feel kind of, you feel taste through time and you feel like kind of, you know, my grandmother died when I was seven. And it just, it felt like such an extraordinary feeling to be bound by something I I hadn't known that we had. And imagining this woman you knew when you were seven, and I don't know what your grandmother was like. Oh, she had long, long, long hair. Um, She was kind of like self-styled as a a gypsy. She had like, you know, bandanas, lots of like kind of waistcoats, knitted things, like very, very clashy and bright and brilliant. Actual Stevie Nicks. (laughs) Yeah, she was fantastic. But this person who you think of as being a grandmother had had the same response and the same vulnerability and been touched probably in the same ways that you have. It's such a powerful connection. So producer Dale read I Captured the Castle for the first time in lockdown. Producer Dale, not the target demographic for I Captured the Castle, but to know how powerful he found that book and how moved he was and how touched he was by it and how that kind of, you know, sang to him. I think that's the power of her writing but again I felt this sort of you know be absolutely unconscionably soppy you fall in love with your person all over again you do I really think you do and actually there there are certain books you do have a feeling of like yes this person is right for me or not right for me I mean I think it's so un it's so hard not to like that book that if someone doesn't their soul must be calibrated in such a different way I mean there are so many books which are kind of like Marmite so it's fun but there are certain books that do just have this like this 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 essence that like if you don't like that we are very we're wired we're wired differently in some Mm. sense I guess um, oh, there are so many books. Uh, but I'd love to know but when you and your girlfriend met, what were the first books you swapped? Were there any kind of test books that you gave each other where there was a bit of pressure on the book where you're like, please, you have to like this or it's not going to be a runner? Me and my friend Naja used to, we were working together, well, working together, but we would both go to this library in Paris to um, work. And I started sending her famous poems, but kind of, transposed into emojis because we would do anything like not to work in the library so I'd kind of like you know do the emojis of they fuck you up your mum and dad type thing and send it to her and then she'd respond with another one and I'd you know (laughs) small selection of them are are in the Paris Review online but I'd told Leah about this and so she sent me one and I couldn't for the life of me decode it I kind of like outsourced it to lots of different people no one could get it at all. And it was um, it was Mary Oliver, uh, Wild Geese. And it was, you know, w- once we had decoded it, everyone was like, oh, bloody hell, because it's got like very kind of, um, it's it's a beautiful and kind of hot poem too. Is that the, you do not have to be good? Yeah. So that was, that was one of our first kind of literary things. We tried to, it was the summer where everyone was reading Ferrante. So we tried to like read each other each, a chapter of like my brilliant friend and that is the reason why neither of us have finished the book because it was the least conducive way to read it that's the thing I'm not as I'm not I'm not very good at reading to people I still haven't read it I need to read that book but those were a couple of our literary what connections I at the start think of Ferrante I always feel like I'm in a well with her or something those books are, are tunnels and they're really claustrophobic in the best and most thrilling way 
I'm not someone who necessarily always seeks out dystopia, but that's the feeling. I get the fracturing of the two worlds and the sort of the the Naples she's grown up with and the Italy that she's sort of gravitating to. If it's going to be a world Mm. with you, you want to be like one-on-one, you want to be able to like properly fall into it and read it at the pace that the kind of like meter of Mm. the language requires, I guess. But yeah, I think I'm. it's one of those books that, I mean, there's so many books to read. It's very exciting. And yeah, that will be that will be one of them. I think I will have my own Ferrante summer just uh, years after everyone else. But, you know, I don't know. Have you ever worked in a bookshop? I never have worked in a bookshop. Well, what are you doing? Get down to the Margate bookshop right away and get a job with I Francesca. Like, Look, I know you close at five, but you have to let me in. I want to do a shift. The thing about working in a bookshop is... You, my girlfriend always teases me about this too. She thinks that I often say, I have thoughts about a book I haven't read, but have read the kind of like blurb of the first page and have kind of like collected other people's opinions and synthesized them into like what I think about that book. And I do think working in a bookshop forces you to do that because like you just have to have an overview Mm. of everything there. which bookshops have you worked in? I had the great fortune of being the Saturday girl at Queen's Park Books when I was... 17 16 i love queen's park books it is a great bookshop it was me on saturday and then my wonderful friend a fantastic writer samira shackle on sunday um there were the slightly kind of pervy older men who tried to give us numbers and then would go to the pub opposite and kind of watch through the window um but it was mostly a wonderful wonderful experience it was the place where i first heard the word wi-fi i remember <laughs> i wasn't sure what you were going to say <laughs> and i my other memory with that is yeah obviously like trying to learn all of the books that were out there it was it was like prime dan brown time so even at like queen's park books independent bookshop it was still like 70 percent of what we sold it was where i rediscovered um angus thongs and full frontal snogging which had been like one of my favourite books from childhood. I'm so happy, Rosa, that this on this episode we have gone from Doris Lessing to Louise Renison, who I love both, who are both women why I write in different ways. <laughs> but honestly, like when I first, I kept it by my bed for such a long time and whenever I couldn't sleep, I would just open it up and Adrian Mole, Angus Long's Full Front Snogging, but there was something about I think Adrian Mole is timeless. And I'm sure if I was to read the Louise Renison books again, they'd be timeless now because they do just have such a kind of power of voice and like hilarity. They are amazing. But it was so close to like our experiences or at least the experiences that we wanted to have. I went to a girls' school, found them so funny. And I would just like, you know, when you're reading at a bookshop, you have to be so careful with how you open the book and you're kind of like sometimes missing just the ends of all lines or the beginnings of them. But I would just like read them and I got through the whole series while I was there secretly and I just they are they are books that give me such a kind of profound sense of fondness in my cheeks when I think about them oh the joy of those and I think the way she uses language is so poetic and funny and brilliant and I think that it's interesting to sort of talk about her and Adrian Mole and Sue Townsend because very different characters because you've got, you know, Georgia Nicholson being so sort of exuberant and sort of full of passion and full of life. I'm just thinking, sorry, you know that, like, I said how much I love, like, lists and things. I'm just mm. thinking about the beginning of that book, number six, I went to a party mm. dressed as a stuffed olive. Yes. But it's so good. And what's that amazing line where 
is it jazz or someone who says like oh you know like men don't like girls for funniness georgia they like them for other things and you want to say no and like everyone like my friend lauren bravo everyone's like we've all been that girl who's like no one's gonna like me for my funniness damn i want to read it again right now if I me too i think that adrian mole's got this very relatable pooterish sort of superiority to the, the joke being always that he thinks he knows best and he absolutely doesn't and I think it would be, it's interesting, I don't know what you think, whether it would be much harder to write a woman in that way. And obviously, Adrian Mole's a woman's creation, and it can be done. Yeah, I'm sure there are, like, you know, great examples of that. But Adrian Mole is, it's so well done. And it's so funny, like, I remember first reading it when I was 13 or 14. I think I was asked to leave a class. I was reading, uh, I was reading it under the table and I was like, my, me and my friends were reading it. Ruth, shout out to Ruth. And we were sharing it on our laps under the table and just like the type of laughter that mostly only comes in assemblies where you know you're just not allowed to laugh. And we were asked to leave the room, but it just, it's so extraordinary to be able to appeal to adults who are able really to look with like, you know, quite extensive hindsight at teenage years but also people in the prime of their teenage Mm. years and for it still to be hilarious to them too it's so true that it's funny whenever you read it but it just 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 gets funnier and funnier and funnier almost like looking at old photos of yourself it's that kind of book where you think this is still so great and I can't believe that I thought that the the fjord poem was quite good (laughs) and I think that's what I find so extraordinary too I have never like I can be funny in real life. I think in my novels, there are like, you know, I can, I, I enjoy being funny and like, I enjoy having funny characters in their dialogue with each other. But what I find really extraordinary is people who are able to have a truly funny narrative voice, you know, like that is, that is a whole different kind of kettle of fish. And I, and those modes, like when people have found that voice or that mode and it just fucking flies, like I just find that it's such an extraordinary talent to me. There's nothing I'd rather do than laugh. And there are so many books I love that are very, you know, serious and or you know, I think as long as a book has that lightness in it, and I think you're a writer that does that so well, where the seeing the absurd and that absurdity underscoring the darker moments, that's so powerful and so great but when I'm looking to be comforted which is often it's funny that I reach for and funny that I hope for and someone who I think is a master of this and a master of being able to have like a a a funny voice but also kind of like excoriatingly painful like the book that I've often sent people who are ill or better it sounds like I know lots of them but who friends who've kind of ended up you know in in bed for a little while like us by david nichols i think does that tightrope of it can be laugh out loud funny and then it just knocks like it punches your heart so i think that's a that's an extraordinary novel of voice too i loved the tv adaptation so I have, much i haven't and... seen it because like i just i love the book and i it's I, although i'm sure it's wonderful i mean david nichols adapted it himself didn't he so i'm sure it's and he's one of those very rare breeds who are able to kind of do both screen mm. and novels without being decidedly better at one than the other. And I remember when I read ours and like, you know, everyone else in the world, 10 times over, I loved one day. I've loved all of his novels, actually. There's not one that um, I don't adore. 
But I think that Us is so bittersweet and it's so honest. And as you say, the funny bits are magnificent. But I think in some ways, arguably, maybe it's his darkest one, even accounting for the devastating tragedies that sort of run amok in in one day. Um, I was so sad that that it was about the end of something. And when I watched it on TV, I thought I was not old enough. I I was in my 20s and I just wanted to believe in love and happy endings. And I didn't want any of this terribly sophisticated, having this deep, deep, long-lasting love that you fall out of. And I just felt a bit sort of childish about it. Then having seen it happen to friends and just got a slightly better sense of the way the world worked and the way people worked and watching the adaptation, which I think was, you know, fairly faithful. I thought, oh, I get the depth and resonance of this in a way that I just didn't. So I really want to read it again because I think I'd appreciate it more. Not that I didn't love it at the time because I did. No, definitely do. It's, it's, I think, again, like, I think my my mode as a writer is often, like, bittersweet, nostalgic in some way. And I think the so many of the books that I've loved and have been very formative to me all, like, are suffused with the same, the same thing. But I do think it's important in that book that the end of a relationship is given the same kind of um, credence and weight and mm. space in storytelling as the beginning and actually of course it tells the beginning too so so Mm. I think he's so good at really giving us a portrait of a full life I mean he does that very literally in in one day with Mm. kind of in 20 years or however long it is but it's so it's so rich and it's so real and I think that you know we tend to in this country if someone if someone is able to be emotional they're able to make people cry and they're able to sell many copies we can kind of like pigeon well, not we not me but like the literary world can mm-hmm. and, and I don't think David Nichols actually you know I think people are very fond of him and they understand that he's a superb writer but I think so frequently like these emotional books get kind of dubbed sentimental and he yeah. is anything but he's anything but you know mm. they're powerhouses on that theme a book that I think you'd adore And I think this is one of those books where it was, you know, packaged as something very sort of romantic and commercial. And it is those things. It's a fun book. I had a really, really lovely time reading it. And it is ultimately uplifting, but it's also so well written and achingly melancholic and really funny. And the observations are just... Tell me what it is. I'll buy Um, it now. From London with Love by Sarah Manning, which again, you sort of look at the cover and I think that perhaps people like you and me might... I mean, I don't now. Um, I love romantic fiction. Covers have done women dirty for a very, very long time. Um, Yeah. Um, Okay. It's, It's noted... And it's going to be purchased. And I've got to say, I've been sent lots of things that are like, it's the new one day. And to be honest, I think from London to love is the, from London with love is the only thing that's, and it's its own book. She has her own voice. It's fantastic. But in terms of just the feeling I got when I read both books, I was like, I want to move in. I want to live here. And going through capturing London in the 80s, and she evokes the 80s so well that, I mean, I, I was five when they ended so my memories aren't the sharpest but then I I still feel like I know exactly what she's talking about and I know what people smelled like and I know what their hair was like and then she writes about the 90s magnificently I quite like to read everything in the 90s I think there's a new Eva Rice book she wrote um 
Lost Art Keeping Secrets and her new book is a 90s book which I'm very excited about. Uh, the nine, I was thinking I just got my decades a little bit wrong but another book that I read recently in lockdown after like not be, not being able to read anything but the news and kind of you know whatsapp messages from a million different groups the first book I read in lockdown where I was like okay I'm back was <laughs> no one needs me I'm back everyone's like hey, yeah um well I got using my Libby app I love Libby so so much I got out the beach by Alex Garland and that's obviously like kind of prime I guess it would be considered like gen x turn like what when did that come out i guess like i guess end of the 90s yeah it feels like it was after train spotting but not long after but they're of a kind of you know of a moment and i really wondered how that book would kind of um hold up and i thought it was so good like i really just kind of like rollicked right through it i just i, I i've talked about this before but i i think he is kind of extraordinary Alex Garland like he was 25 or 26 when that book came out it was a bestseller in- oh now I'm depressed <laughs> but like most people if they do that they don't really write another thing and he's you know he's done Ex Machina he's done I think he did did he do the screenplay for 28 days he's just got an extraordinary he's done devs like he's just got an extraordinary screenplay career now and he's a director too and I just think like again I have such um admiration for people who who can be versatile in that way and like his life looks kind of set and could could have been so defined by one book and Mm. would we all not like to have sold a million copies and you know xyz but he continued making and he's hardly the person in the world I feel sorriest for it's not it's not about that but it's I still kind of I admire the the craft of it I think Mm. And the shape-shifting. I hear that. And I loved The Beach. I read it quite late. I remember um, it was free in The Guardian. But yeah, I think about that all the time. Not an obvious Yorbit reference, but I think about it so much um, when I listen to Paul McCartney, a big, uh, big Macca household. And I love like, Temporary Secretary. But you think, how do you keep making music when you've been in The Beatles and The Beatles is over? you still go to like your recording studio and your garden that you've built with your billions of dollars and you just you st- you keep making stuff and i find that so heartening and so encouraging that you you can only write let it be one time you don't know what's going to happen if you're a creative person when you sit down and it depends on who you're with it depends on so many external things and you you live in hope and progress isn't linear but there's still that bit of you that wants to keep sitting down. I think there's something very extraordinary about seeing pure talent like that, otherworldly talent, like the type of talent that allowed the Renaissance to happen. You know, like this kind of like world-changing talent. And it just feels extraordinary that it happened and that they met and that like, I I don't know, it's it's just such an extraordinary body of work. And whenever... Whenever my ears get a little bit bored of music, partially because I basically listen to the same Spotify like soundtrack on repeat, I go back to Revolver or the White Album, and it's just like you fall in love with it again. Awesome, like good old Wings, you know that'll do it too. I love Wings. Oh, Rosa, I could talk to you forever. I know you've got to get to the cinema. I've um, got to get to the cinema. I'm very jealous of your cinema trip. Before we go, but like. 
can we do it again one day yeah um, totally I would love to hear about any books that you've got on your pile, what you're excited about reading next, anything. Yeah, so what do I have on my pile? I'm currently reading Emily St. John Mandel's Sea of Tranquility, which I've only just started. And I've got a couple of tomes on my pile, real big boys. I've been wanting to have a kind of like Donna Tartt style, like carry around something like biblical in length. I haven't read the like wolf hall books so with a couple of friends we've each we're gonna we're, we're diving in to start that journey together chris power tweeted the other day that you know he'd had one of the best reading experiences of his life with um don delillo's underworld and he phrased it in a beautiful way it's like the book had come with him through multiple kind of house moves then it was just waiting for the right moment and i think that there are so many stories like there i can looking at these books and they're mostly ones I've read because I brought them with me, but there are just books that I may, may have brought with me for, for through different countries. And at one point I'll pick them up and it'll be the right time and I won't feel that kind of like the jarring thing that stopped me the last time and you'll go. And that's what I mean. It kind of links back to that same thing I was saying about these these books that we write too. Other people may touch wood, have that moment with them later. But yeah, it's Don Delillo, Underworld and Wolf Hall. Just to keep them light and breezy. I'm going to have to put some shorter ones in between. Otherwise you do, you do kind of your metrics get all screwed up. I've never read any Dundalilla and I've not read the Wolf Hall books either. So, and I feel like they are, they're coming for me. Do you want to join our gang? I would love to join your gang. Oh, thank you so much. That'd be fantastic. And I think I need an accountability buddy. I think I need someone. I'm on page seven. Um, No, I'm I'm actually, and I, the other thing is, I'm not typically a historical fiction person, which is again, very limiting and ridiculous. Of course, there are novels full of great mastery of historical fiction. It's not typically where I choose to go to. So I'm, I'm, apart from if it's Sarah Waters, obviously. Um, But yeah, I'm really excited. Oh, fantastic. I mean, to be honest, I'm the same. Anything I think is that sort of, 1920 onwards I'm like yes please uh spoon feed it to me especially especially the 50s especially the 70s especially the 90s but I should be brave the extraordinary thing about you know if you can read someone's autobiographies or the tributes to someone and the lines of their writing make you cry not just because of the context but because of the extraordinary beauty of the text you know if like if we as writers could be remembered like by a line that is that is beautiful. I mean, isn't that a kind of, isn't that a wonder? All this to say her writing like shines through even if you haven't read it. So I'm glad to be starting on that journey. Huge thanks to Rosa. Dreamland and The Last Kings of Sark are both out now in paperback. They make perfect, smart, creepy, exquisitely observed winter reading. You can follow us at YBooked on social media, look out for book recommendations, words of wisdom from old guests and occasional shelfies. We love it when you share the podcast with your friends and thanks so much to everyone who has left a five-star review. If you've been listening for a while and you haven't given us five stars yet, please do. It helps other people to discover us and their new favourite books. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Rosa at acast.com forward slash booked and check out her selection in our bookshop on bookshop.org. Don't forget to follow further reading on Substack for more information about Rosa and her books as well as lots of lit chat. We'll be back soon with more bookish conversation but for now I leave you with this from Brené Brown which applies to books and life. The middle is messy 
but it is also where the magic happens. See you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.